Good morning. Again, we're in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5 this morning, so if you have a Bible, uh, turn in your Bible there. Happy to be with you this morning. Um, I have a little bit of a cold, so, um, but praise the Lord for a rapid COVID test. It's not COVID, and I'm thankful for that. The last big family vacation my family and I went on before we went off and got married and had our own families was through um, South Dakota to Mount Rushmore and then down to Colorado for a family uh, reunion. It was five adults in, the, in a kind of a king-size pickup truck um, pulling a camper, and uh, we, it was just barely big enough for us, but we made it. Praise God. We made it across the prairie of Iowa and to South Dakota to Waldrug where we got our free uh, ice water, and uh, then we went on to Mount Rushmore. The next leg of the trip, though, was west to Wyoming and then a straight shot down to Denver. Thanks to the pioneers of old, this was a well-worn path, now Highway 85, that went through the Thunder Basin National Grassland. Now, the national parks of the U.S. are beautiful. We'd just been through uh, Black, Forest, Black Hills Forest. We went to the Badlands, rugged and beautiful and awesome. But the Thunder Basin National Grassland is not one of those amazing places. <laughs> or at least it wasn't to this 20-year-old kid. It was six hours of absolutely the most boring stretch of land that I had ever been through. 128 miles of drudgery from Mount Rushmore National Memorial to the next civilization in Lusk, Wyoming. We made it halfway, and it seemed like forever, and we'd only made it halfway. I was trying to express this morning what suffering is like, and I think suffering is like going through Thunder Basin National Grassland. It seems to take forever. There seems to be no hope that it will ever get any better, and it just keeps going and going and going. See, this world is a world of suffering. Every world religion recognizes this fact. Buddhism, in one of its four truths, says that life is suffering. Islam says that, in the Quran, that we are surrounded by hardship. Hinduism teaches that suffering is an inescapable and integral part of life. And Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. This world is a world of suffering. And each of the world's religions have something to say about that, a response to this world of suffering. Buddhism teaches that suffering is caused by desire, so you must eliminate desire in order to eliminate suffering. Islam teaches that suffering is used by Allah to test people and that they may enter paradise if they pass the test. Hinduism teaches that both pleasure and pain are dualities of life and the objective is to overcome them. All of the religions look at our plight of suffering and say, get better or imagine it gone, or rise above it. But anyone that has gone through suffering, real suffering, knows that in the midst of suffering, there is no comfort in that message. But Christianity is different. Its response to suffering is the message of Jesus Christ that He is with us in our suffering, and He will be our guide through this world of suffering to the other side. Rather than a distant de deity on the other side saying, get through it, 
Our God became like us and suffers like us. He's the pioneer of life, a life of suffering. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has entered into our suffering, and because he entered into it with us, we have help in our time of suffering. I really think suffering comes down to two flavors. There's the suffering that is brought on by the injustice of a broken world. The suffering that just happens because we're people. And then there's the suffering that is brought on um, because of the injustice that we cause, our own sinfulness. There are hurts that happen to us, and then there are hooks that happen to us because of our broken um, life. The suffering from hurts is universally seen as evil, and there's mercy often for those people. So when there's a hurricane, we send money or take a meal to a sick person. But the suffering of hooks, the suffering that happens because of our own sinfulness, often in this world doesn't have any kind of mercy. There's very little mercy for a person in prison because of a crime that they committed. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that He is our help. Through suffering, whether it's because of the rotten world we live in or because of, um, because of our own sinfulness, His comfort and mercy is not just for the hardships we go through because of others, but also because of the hardships that we bring on ourselves. So let's look in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. And we're going to go to the end of the chapter. In, in the passage, last time we saw the theological truth uh, of that Jesus is cosmic uh, controller of the universe. And now, in this passage, we're going to see uh, the theological truth of the human life of Jesus in verses 5 through 13, then the application of that theological truth to our hurts in verses 14 to 16, and then the application of that theological truth to our hooks in verses 17 and 18. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who, are all, who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. 
For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. First, there's this theological truth of the humanity of Jesus. In the, the first chapter of the, of the book of Hebrews, uh, uh, there is this cosmic power of the Son of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. The grandeur of the Son in His deity superior to angels and of all creation holding the universe in His hand. But in chapter 2, the author turns from the Son being greater than angels, and now he says that humanity is, in fact, greater than angels as well, because humanity was created to rule the world. I love how the author cites his source here. There's a place someone has testified. (laughs) That's good. Thanks to modern Bibles, we know the chapter and verse that he's talking about, and it's in in Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. See, the the psalmist extols the majesty of God because God crowned humans with glory. Humans are given the ability to rule. This goes all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, (coughs) excuse me, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them Male and female, he created them. God gave us this ability to rule and this responsibility to rule over creation as his image bearer from the beginning of creation. You see, he didn't make Adam and Eve uh, tourists in a world run by angels. He made them stewards in a garden and he gave them work to do and a project to complete. The author of Hebrews here makes it more plain. Nothing was created on this planet that was outside the control of humanity. Now, the question in the original reader's mind, as well as ours, is, what in the world are you talking about? Look at the world around us. I I don't have any control over anything. How in the world can the author of Hebrews say that we have control and that everything is subjected to us? I can't control one blade of grass. I can't control one little virus. 
The world is far from my control. It's out of control. You know, according to the American Psychological Association in an online article in 2019, it said only 45% of people aged 11 to 22, those are uh, so-called Generation Z, say that their mental health is in very good or excellent condition. It goes on, more than 9 in 10 Gen Z adults, 91%, said they've experienced at least one physical or emotional symptom because of stress, such as feeling depressed or sad or lacking interest, motivation or energy. Only half of all Gen Zers feel like they do enough to manage their stress. It's no great revelation that they are stressed out. They constantly see in the ever-present news and internet a steady stream of violence, hatred, political unrest, climate upheaval. They feel powerless to do anything about it. Not only that, but they feel burdened by the generations that came before that made this whole mess. And now this Generation Z is cheered to go fix it all. And now they're even stressed out about that. Let's face it. Uh, Generation Z is stressed out, but that's not unique to them. Every generation is stressed because this world is a world of suffering. How in the world can I sit here and read this ancient book that says everything is in subjection to us and take it seriously? The original audience had that same question too. Their stress wasn't coming from climate change or COVID. It was coming from violence that was all around them for being a Christian at all. Uh, Caesar Nero was trying to pin the great fire of Rome on them and killing them systematically. To be called a Christian meant the threat of death. Later on in Hebrews 11, the author describes what people were going through. There were others who were tortured, refused to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went out in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. See, the stress of this early church was real, just like the stress that we have today. So back in chapter 2, the author makes the statement that nothing is outside of humanity's control, and he knows their question is coming, what in the world are you talking about? The world is not in control. And he says, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. The reality is, we were made to rule this world, to have command of the wind and the waves. But we don't see it right now. What do we see? Oh, I love how he says this. We don't see it right now, but we do see Jesus. See Jesus here in Mark chapter 4. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in a boat. There were also others with him in the boat. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, saying, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? 
even the wind and the waves obey him. See, I don't think that in that passage, Jesus is displaying his deity in that story. I think he's displaying his perfect humanity. See, we were made to command the wind and the waves. We were made to have dominion over this world, but because of our brokenness, because of our sinfulness, we don't have that. The disciples' little faith was because they didn't believe that God had given them power over creation. And why should they? They were powerless. They were powerless because of the fall. See, humans were made to rule. We don't see it now, but we see Jesus. Jesus, humanity, made just like us, a little while lower than the angels. And he could say to the wind and the waves, peace, be still, and they obeyed. And more than the waves of water, Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, is the pioneer of our path to glory. It says Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now, don't make a mistake here. It's not that he got a little nibble of death. No, to taste death means to experience something cognitively or emotionally, to come to know something. Jesus experienced it all. See, there's one experience that none of us have in this room. Some of us have come close, too close, but none of us have experienced death and then come back from the dead. But Jesus has. He experienced it all. And now on the other side of death, he has pioneered our way through the suffering of this life. See, the text says it was fitting that God should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. How can the Son of God the one in chapter 1 who is upholding the universe by the word of his power, how can he be made perfect? Did, Did he lack perfection in some way? Certainly not. The author of Hebrews here is not indicating that God was lacking in some way, but it was fitting, it was necessary, it was the right thing to do to have the pioneer of this life actually go through this life of suffering. There was no way around it. I've had this thought experiment before. What if Mary and Joseph had never gone to Egypt? And what if Jesus had died when Herod killed all the kids less than two? Would that have been sufficient to save? Then I would go a step back further. If he'd, what if he'd just died at birth? Would that be sufficient to save? And then the thought experiment goes, well, What if he was never born? What if it was just the idea of a God-man? Is that sufficient? Did the world have to see Jesus fully grown? And did he have to experience uh, life to be the sacrifice? Or was just the thought of him enough? In essence, could God just consider that there was a God-man that lived and died? And would that bring the justice for the violation of sin that was required. And I think the book of Hebrews says here, no, it was fitting, it was necessary, it was purposeful that the suffering servant is not just an idea like um, the rabbis now think about Isaiah 53, that he's just an idea, just a people. No, the suffering servant 
must experience this life of suffering. He was a person, a real person, flesh and blood. What's the benefit of this necessary perfection through suffering? Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. By his tasting death for all, you and I are brought in. See, God's intention for humanity was to have a family to rule and reign over all creation. The intention was left unrealized in Adam. R.K. Hughes, in his excellent commentary on Hebrews, says, Not only is God's original intention achieved, but his ultimate intention is achieved in Christ, the second Adam. Now, the author of Hebrews uses two scriptures to illustrate this claim. First, Psalm 22, which is the psalm that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This psalm of David, written in great despair, as he is being chased by his enemies, he cries out, Where are you, God, in my suffering? David wrote a psalm that was deeply personal and and descriptive of his own suffering. He said, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people, All who seek me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. This very personal psalm of suffering is indicative of all human suffering. So much so that this psalm is on the lips of people as they go through suffering throughout history, and even on the lips of Jesus as he died on the cross. As the psalmist calls those around him in that psalm, brother, Jesus, by suffering with us, calls us brother and sister. Do you know that you can call Jesus your brother? He's not some distant cousin that you only see once a year at the Thanksgiving table. He is your brother. He is with you. He is your kin. The next passage that the author of Hebrews cites is Isaiah 8. In this passage, Isaiah has two sons. One is named Mahar Shalal Ahashbaz, which means something like quick to the plunder, soft, uh, swift to the spoil. And another son named Sheer Jashub, which means a remnant will return. God tells Isaiah to take his son, Sheer Jashub, and go to King Ahaz and tell him that though King Aram, who is attacking, is going to be there for a bit, he's going to be defeated, and that this suffering will come to an end. And Isaiah says to King Ahab, ask God for a sign, and God will give you that sign. But uh, the king refuses to ask for a sign, not because of faith, but because of fear. He says, I don't want to ask for a sign. Isaiah says, you're going to get a sign anyway. There will be a young woman, he says, and she will bear a son. And before the son knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. Yes, there will be suffering at the hand, not of Aram, but worse, of the Assyrians, but it will come to an end. There will be a quick and devastating plunder, Mahar Shalal Hashabaz, that's one son. 
but there will be a remnant that returns. Sheer Jashub. Isaiah is standing there with his two children at the king. And at the end of his declaration of his prophecy, Isaiah says, Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. See, in these two quotations uh, in the book of Hebrews, the author argues that Jesus suffered as we suffer. And the pioneer of our faith, he shows us how to trust in God. Just as Isaiah stood there with his two children and said, I will show you that this will come to be. Jesus walks through it with us. He is with us. During this Advent season, we see and hear Emmanuel, God with us. The good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is that God is with us. The other world religions say God is out there, unreachable, unknowable. The passage here says that the Son of God is with us. He has come in the flesh and blood, and He has pioneered our way through this world of suffering. So the passage now takes this theological truth, God is with us, and applies it in two ways, to our hurts in verses 14 to 16, and our hooks in 17 and 18. 14 through 16, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. See, Jesus breaks the power of death and the dread of the fear of death. This is suffering, that in the end we die. So we live our life in fear of that. That's what suffering is all about, being afraid of dying. See, death is not our friend. It is not a comfort. Yes, Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain, but he was not saying that, that dying was good. He understood that death was not the ultimate end, but death is the enemy. It's really the most unnatural aspect of life. We all have this sense that life is just going to keep going on and on and on. Even when we hear someone very old dying, we grieve because it was too soon. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ we are all made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus is destroying death. And this passage in Hebrews says he is breaking the power of the one who holds the power of death, the devil. Death and the fear of death is unnatural and unholy. It's the work of the devil. But the devil is defeated, most ironically, by the God-man who entered into life and then went through death and came out the other side. 
We are free from the power of death. See, death is like a schoolyard bully. And our big brother Jesus is standing up to him. We can stand behind Jesus who's with us. And even though there is death all around, he gives us strength to go through it. The angels don't die. They're not part of the creation marred by the fall with death. So Jesus didn't come to help them. He came to help you. Why? Again, R.K. Hughes said, On the authority of God's word, you are important and of infinite value. You are just a little lower than the angels. You will be crowned with honor and glory. Everything will be put under your feet See, even death itself is no match for Jesus. Jesus is with us and is in, in with us in our time of hurts. And when we have the fear of death, yes, we will all die, but he has shown us the way through it. And he has taken its power away. Jesus is with you in your life of suffering and the fear of death. Second, Jesus is with us even in the hooks of life, even in the temptation of sin. Verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is like us in every way, so, we can stand, so he can stand in the gap for us and make atonement for sin. See, the weight of sin is too great. The smallest sin is overwhelming and condemns us to hell forever. But we have a high priest who paid the penalty for sin. The author of Hebrews is going to dive deeper into this in chapter 4. We'll look forward to that, but for now... The application of him being our high priest is that he suffered when he was tempted to sin. And because he was tempted and made it through, we know how to follow him. We can follow him as we are tempted to sin. Again, R.K. Hughes says, what a temptation to escape, what suffering. But he bore it all. And even more significantly, he bore it as a man. He was tempted and suffered, and endured with a human mind, body, and emotions, and he never turned away from the cross. What's more, as a man, he endured greater temptation and suffering than any other man, because he never gave in to sin. As Philip Hughes explains regarding Christ, he knows the full force of temptation in a manner that we have not withstood it to the end cannot know. Think of it this way. Which bridge has undergone the greater stress? The one that collapses under its first load of traffic or the one that bears the same traffic morning and evening, year after year. See, Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. Jesus has gone through that life of suffering. He made it through. And he didn't resist temptation because he was divine. He resisted temptation because of his perfect humanity who had dominion over creation and he had broken the power of death and the, the fear of death, he had broken the power of the devil. Sin and the fear of death are linked because they're so often linked in our lives. Why do we sin? Why do we sin? I think we sin often because we think there's no way out. 
we think that somehow sin is going to give us some sort of happiness that we can't find anywhere else. We're, we're, we're uh, lied to in that way. The devil said, even in Genesis 3, 4, you will certainly not die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See, Satan has always been saying, you need to sin. It's okay. It's actually good. That's a lie from the devil. I think the other reason we sin is because we're afraid. We think if I don't lie or cheat or steal, I'm going to die. And we're afraid of dying. We think there's no other way out. There's no way around it except to sin, so I'm forced to sin. But Jesus shows us a better way. Listen to Luke 4, 1-13. In there we see Jesus tempted and passing through it to the other side. He's faced with hunger, and the devil tempts him to make bread into, uh, stone into bread. And Jesus counters with Scripture, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus is tempted with earthly power and fame. Jesus again resists. It's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is tempted to escape death itself by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, though he knew he was deserving this power, he resisted it by saying, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Funny that his way of resisting the devil was actually a rebuke of the devil. The devil was the one putting the Lord to the test, and he was doing the sinning. Jesus would not do it. Jesus refused. See, these temptations are really representations of all of our temptations. We are in need. We want power. We want to escape death. Jesus didn't run from them. Jesus stood up to them and made his way through temptation. He took the weight of sin on himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is with us to show us the way through temptation. And even when we fail, he's with us to save us from the sin that we encounter. Today, if you're feeling the hurts of life or feeling the pull of the hooks of temptation to sin, know this, Jesus is with you in your suffering. How do you do this? You let him in. He's with you. If you will remember that by believing that. Tell God today, I believe that Jesus is the God-man that has died to save me from my sin. If you've not taken that step of faith, I encourage you, today is the day of salvation. For those of you that have believed that, you have put your trust in Jesus, know that you can call Jesus your brother and he has walked through this life with you. He has suffered as you suffer. He suffered in his body. We're going to go to the Lord's Supper here in a moment. And we're going to remember this Jesus, who is our big brother, who suffered in this world. And his body is represented in that bread. He, he suffered to the point of shedding his own blood which is represented in the juice, to make atonement for us. He broke the power of death 
And we take this bread and this drink to remember him until he comes again. When he's going to destroy the last enemy, death, once and for all, and bring us with him, the pioneer of our life in this world, the life that God wants us to live. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for being the pioneer of this life that we um, are called to. Jesus, you said this in this world there'd be trouble. And Lord, we know it. There are some here who are suffering with sickness, uh, long-term sickness. They're suffering with broken relationships. They're suffering from their own sinfulness. Uh, I know, God, that, uh, that I suffer from my own sinful desires and my own sinful choices. And I know there are people here that have that same suffering as well. God, I thank you that you uh, are with us. Jesus, you are uh, showing us how to live this life of faith. You have uh, suffered along with us and you have paid the penalty for sin so that we can be right with you forever. God, I pray for my friends here today. If there are some that don't know this, they don't understand this truth, would you show them that, uh, that they can trust you. And for my friends here today that have put their faith in you, I pray, God, that they would call you brother and they would look to you in their time of suffering. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.